I'm thankful for something we have in common as churches that you may not think about very often, um, but that's our shared value, conviction, about the importance of expository preaching. Um, to be part of Sovereign Grace Churches is to uh, be united in fellowship, in mission, and in governance, but we, we also have shared values that hold us together in those things. And, and one of those is a commitment to expository preaching. And if you've never heard that word or that phrase, it can just sound like a big religious thing. Um, here's what that's about, okay? To believe in the importance of expository preaching is to believe that the structure and emphasis of God's word, a passage in God's word, should be the structure and emphasis of the sermon you are preaching. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, what you need most is not my thoughts about God. You need God's revelation of himself. And so that's my heart this morning as we look um, at the book of Deuteronomy. You can open your Bible to Deuteronomy 5 if you have one with you or pull it up on your smartphone. I ask that that is the only thing you look at on your smartphone uh, during the sermon. But we're going to look at the fourth commandment, like Josh said. And, and I hope that even though we're, we're diving into the middle of the Ten Commandments, um, that this message serves you in a particular way. Um, I've noticed over my years of ministry that a lot of even Christians can be really confused about how do you, how do you understand, how do you interpret and apply everything in your Bible, Old Testament, that shows up before Jesus comes? What, what do we do with all of that? And I think there are different ditches people fall into. So there are folks that say, we're just gonna, whatever God says in the Old Testament, we're just going to lift that out and do the same thing today. No change. Um, maybe you know some people like that. I think there are other people who say, well, I don't know what God was kind of up to there with the tassels on garments and all that weird stuff. So we're just going to think about Jesus and read our New Testament. We're, we're going to leave that in the closet. Um, both of those are problematic. Um, God has something better for us. And so I hope as, as we work through the fourth commandment today, th that it can be a bit of a, a case study, if you would, an example of how God wants us to think about everything in the Mosaic Law. So Lord, would you do that today? I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear, a heart to understand. We, we want to not just think your thoughts after you. We want to feel your feelings after you. And so I pray that what you think and what you feel would be what we think and we feel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. How many times, my friends, have you asked someone, how's it going? And heard in reply, man, it's been really busy. I hear that all the time. How's it going? Ah, oh, it's been really busy. And, and usually that's followed by, you know, a weary sigh or some story of stress at home or at work. I've, I've rarely heard someone speak of busyness as a good thing. And if busyness is so bad or something that we're quick to complain about, you would, you would think rest is presumably really good. So think about this. Why is it uncommon to hear someone answer the same question, how's it going, by saying, it's been really restful lately. I don't hear that on Sunday morning a lot. And I think, 
I think part of the reason is our tendency to ground our identity, our personal sense of worth and value, and our activity. So busyness feels like it, it justifies our existence in ways that rest does not. So you don't get promotions typically for resting, right? You, you get a promotion for working. You, you don't get paid for resting. You get paid for working. You don't achieve success by resting. You achieve success by working. We, we live in a performance-centered, work-oriented kind of culture. And friends, that's a, that's a false gospel in many ways. A cult of busyness that, that many people readily embrace. But there are a lot of folks that take the exact opposite approach. Uh, maybe you're one of these. So in your mind, work is an unfortunate necessity. Maybe you moved down here to Wilmington and you just thought, I want to be at the beach. I am done with work. I don't know. But, but maybe in your mind, work, work is a drain. Work is drudgery. And, and when you do have to work, you're just thinking about how soon can I rest because rest is where it's at. No responsibilities. No claims on the way you spend your time. That's the good life. Every week on vacation, every night watching TV, every weekend playing sports, video games, unlimited recreation for my boys, maybe unlimited screen time. But that too is a false gospel. It's a cult of entertainment that many of us readily embrace. All that to say, I think our, our cultural vision of rest tends to be just as unbiblical as our cultural vision of work. But we forget that. We, we try to, to balance our idolatry of work with, with a little idolatry of rest, and a little idolatry of rest with a little idolatry of work, and I would simply say to that fact, friend, that, that slavery to a balanced array of idols is still slavery, <laughs> and we need God to deliver us from both those things. A false gospel of work, the lie that says my identity comes from my activity, and a false gospel of rest, the lie that says my life is found in complete freedom from responsibility whatsoever. We, we need the Spirit of God to renew our minds to, to see our work for what it really is and our rest for where it's really found. Because only when our, our pursuit of work and rest aligns with God's plan for our work and rest do we find true life in our work and in our rest. And that's what makes the fourth commandment such a gift. If you're not familiar with this book, in Deuteronomy 5, Moses is preaching to Israel. Uh, they're on the, the edge of the promised land, the banks of the Jordan, about to go in. And he's, he's more or less equipping them with the most important things they need to know as they prepare to live in God's place. So the Lord's addressing both their work and their rest here. But he gives primary attention to the rest. So hear the word of God, Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock 
or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you grew up in church, those are familiar words. Uh, but I want to lead us in asking and answering three questions about this passage, okay? We have a why, a how, and a what. So here's the why. Why did keeping the Sabbath matter for Israel? How does Jesus change what it means to keep the Sabbath? And what does keeping the Sabbath look like today? What does it look like for you in Wilmington, in Grace City? So let's begin with question one. Why did keeping the Sabbath matter for Israel? The, the basic principle, at least in a behavioral sense, I think is easy enough to grasp. Okay, so what's the principle? Rest, don't work on the seventh day of the week. That's the basic principle. But, but notice that's not the first thing the Lord says when he explains what it means to honor the Sabbath as a holy day. A holy day is just a day set apart for God. He begins by saying, look at verse 13. What's the first thing he says? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Why? Well, because work is just as much as a part of God's good design for your life as rest. You ever thought about that? Um, from, from the divine mandate to Fill and subdue the earth, Genesis 1, to, to the command to work and keep the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, Scripture never treats work as some sort of unfortunate necessity. Rather, to the contrary, that the God who works and, and created us to image him in our work, those two facts, God works, he created us to image him in our work, Friend, that infuses your work with incredible dignity and value. But if work is so good, why, why stop? Well, because rest is just as good. It too is an act of worship. It's one of the ways we, we image our creator. In our rest, we, we fulfill something of God's glorious purpose for our life. Which means rest is not an fortunate necessity in light of the pain and sorrow of work. Think about that. God, when, when did he establish the seventh day as a day of rest? Well, it's in Genesis 2, which is what? Before the curse of sin entered God's world in Genesis 3 and made work painful and depleting. And so that means that, that the whole priority of rest the importance of the Sabbath is, is grounded in something, please hear this, friend, deeper and greater than our need to get patched back up so we can survive another week of toil. What's it grounded in? The, the priority of rest, of Sabbath, it's, it's grounded in the goodness and perfection of God's work and our absolute dependence on him as our creator and sustainer. Maybe you've wondered, I've thought about this, but why did God rest in the creation account in Genesis on the seventh day? Why would God rest 
If, as Isaiah declares, he doesn't faint or grow weary. Or as the psalmist says, he doesn't need to slumber or sleep. Why would God rest? Well, he rested for the simple reason that, that his creative work was perfectly complete and he delighted to do so. I think Alan Ross is really helpful on this. Speaking of God's decision to rest, he writes, it, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. So God rested because the work he finished was exceedingly worthy of being enjoyed and celebrated. It was very good. And so rooted in God's own example in Genesis 2, the Sabbath is fundamentally a celebration of the perfection of God's work and an expression of our dependence on him as his creatures. So again, back to Israel. Think about this, okay? What, what does an Israelite landowner have in common with their servant? Well, it's the same thing that the servant has in common with the donkey. What is that? That they're all creatures, right? They're, they're all fashioned by the God in whom they live and move and have their being. So here's what that means. No, no matter how great your coworkers or your teacher, or your employer, or your spouse, or you think you are, friend, you are not omniscient, or omnipotent, or omnipresent. What do I mean by that? You don't know all things. You're not everywhere present. You're not all-powerful. Why? Because you're a creature. You're a finite creature like me. You have spectacular worth and dignity by virtue of being created in God's image. But you're not, you're not the one who holds all things together. You're, you're not the source of your life. God is. Who holds all things together? God does. And that's what observing the Sabbath was all about. Fundamentally for Israel, what was it about? It was an expression, a powerful expression of dependence because life in the ancient Near East was really fragile. We can forget that today. They, they didn't have refrigerators or freeze dryers or, or canned goods. They, they ate whatever they grew. Like homesteading wasn't a cool, trendy thing. It's what everybody did. And so if you have a severe drought... Or you have a hard freeze before harvest. That's not just an inconvenience. I guess we'll have to go to Kroger or to Harris Teeter. No, that means potential starvation for you or for your family. So think about this. If you waited an extra day to bring in that harvest and the hailstorm came on that day or the Philistines came on that day and burned all your crops, you were done. Game over. So you're telling me, Moses, that even during harvest, even when my life and my wife's life and my kid's life depends on me getting that grain into this barn, that you're going to have the audacity to not just suggest but command that I set aside an entire day not to work. I mean, it, it almost sounds like God's commanding irresponsibility to our American minds, right? But that's not what he's doing. What is he doing? 
He's calling them to trust him as the Lord who provides by resting from their own labor. To, to express their dependence on him by what? By ceasing from their work that they might renew their trust in his. That's the point. So, so the rest the Sabbath requires wasn't, notice this, it wasn't passive or aimless. Okay, it wasn't just, well, you're, you're just going to check out in front of the TV and I'd like you to do that one day a week and glorify me somehow through that. No, it was active and intentional. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Verse 15. But Moses tells Israel what to do, exactly what to do, with the time they otherwise would have spent working, all right? Notice it involves more than the absence of work. It's about remembering and meditating on the faithfulness of God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You shall remember. What, what, what did Israel need to stop and remember that God had done for her all those years earlier in Egypt? What, what did she need to remember? Well, it's, it's something that was still true about her life. And honestly, every Christian today. What's that? The simple fact, friend, that God is the source of your life. God's the source of your life. A apart from Yahweh, Israel was nothing. Brothers and sisters, apart from the Lord, you are nothing. I mean, th think about it, this. Who are you, Christian, apart from God's redeeming work in your life? Who are you? You are enslaved to sin and death, running headlong toward judgment. So what did God do? Well, he, he opened your eyes to see your need to be, to be reconciled to your creator. He, he led you to the cross where he displayed his love for you by, by dying in your place for your sins. He led you to the empty tomb where, where the father vindicates the sufficiency of the son's sacrifice, holding out to you the gift of resurrection life. And then as if that's all not enough, he then pours his spirit into your heart, enabling you to respond by surrendering to Jesus as your savior and king. That's what he's done for you if you're a Christian. And so what Israel remembered in the exodus from Egypt, we remember in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we remember who we once were. We remember how God broke in. We remember the abundant life we enjoy even now as his sons and daughters. The point of the, the gospel is that the life God has given you, Christian, is ultimately the fruit of his work, not your work. It's not your thing, something you created or worked up. You're, you're not a self-made man. You're not a, a self-made woman. You, you want to know who are you every day of your life that you wake up? You're a trophy of grace. That's who you are. 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Maybe you've wondered, why, why did this... Sabbath command, make the top 10 list, 10 commandments. Why, why is that top 10, you know? Why, why, why was resting on the Sabbath day the sign of the old covenant? 
Why do all the prophets that came after Moses, they just excoriate Israel for breaking the Sabbath? Nehemiah 13, Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 17, Ezekiel 20, we could go on. What, what is the big deal about this one day and seven thing? Well, it's more than a religious ritual. It was an outward expression of her heart toward the Lord. Does my life depend, this is the question, on what God does for me or what I do for myself? That's the question. Am I a creature or am I not? Do I need a savior or do I not? That's what's at stake here. That the Sabbath command mattered big time for Israel because it was all about remembering and expressing her dependence on God's perfect work by resting from her own. That, that's the point. And, and we're no less dependent, brothers and sisters. If, if Exodus 20 grounds the Sabbath command in our dependence on the Lord by virtue of creation, Deuteronomy 5 grounds the Sabbath command in our dependence on the Lord by virtue of redemption. And both creation and redemption, what, what do both those things? Shout. God is the source of your life. That's what they shout. God's the source of your life. The, the question is not if that's true, but whether you'll believe that and trust God accordingly. Listen to Kevin DeYoung. The Sabbath principle from creation to Exodus in the New Testament, the Lord's Day, has always pointed in the direction of trust. That's what the Sabbath was at heart, always about. Can you trust God to give you manna for two days on the sixth day? Can you trust God to make up for the lost work on one day by blessing you on the other six days? Can you trust that this burden you're carrying is not yours to carry alone? Can you trust God to carry it and carry you if you have enough faith to stop striving and to start worshiping? That's the question. But, but it's really at this point that we have to stop and consider something that I, I alluded to at the very beginning. Can, can we really draw a, a straight line from the Old Testament Sabbath law to the New Testament Lord's Day? Are those, are those things the same? Or has something changed? We have to remember that while the people of God today are not under the law in a covenantal sense, the fourth commandment still has a claim on your life. So here's the question we have to ask, and this is the question you really have to ask about every part of the Mosaic law. How has the person and work of Jesus Christ changed how we interpret and apply that law? That's the question, okay? Pick a law in the Old Testament. You have to ask that question, why? Because in Matthew 5, 17, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, to just say, I don't know what God the Father was into there, but we're gonna try to start over with this grace thing. No, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. So here's the second question. How does Jesus change 
what it means to keep the Sabbath. Remember, where have we come from thus far, okay? If the Sabbath was all about not just checking out from work, but remembering our physical and spiritual dependence on God, leaning the weight of our life on Him, it's the Lord who provides, what's that look like today? Because of Jesus. Well, listen to how the author of Hebrews compares the people of God, the Israelites, under the Old Covenant, to the people of God today, under the New Covenant, and he identifies trust in God as the key to experiencing true rest. So we actually read this earlier this morning, but I'll read a small portion again. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, let us work, let us persevere to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So let's think about that passage. Okay, ask a couple quick questions. First, what, what kind of rest does Hebrews urge us to enter into? What kind of rest? Well, it's, it's nothing less than God's rest. The, the rest that God himself enjoys. Think about that. It's, it's not, you know, rest junior. It's God's rest. What he himself enjoys. The delight, the satisfaction of knowing his work is perfect. His work is complete. His work is finished. So how do we enter God's rest? How do, how do we experience the very joy God himself enjoys in his own work? Well, Hebrews tells us through faith, Right? Those who have what? Believed enter that rest. So what's the object of our belief? Right? Faith is only as good as the object of that faith. So who or what are we believing? Well, we're believing in Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. He's the object of our faith. How do we know that? Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest, who's that? Jesus, who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, our faith in Jesus. Here's the point, okay? It's our confession or faith in Jesus, in the saving work he accomplished at the cross that enables you, friend, to experience and enjoy God's rest. That's the kind of rest that, that comes from abandoning all our futile attempts. To, to create life for ourselves, And clinging to Jesus as, as the only one who can give you life and sustain your life. The, the Sabbath, like so many other Old Testament institutions, it just points forward to God's spiritual and physical provision in Jesus. And so on this side of the cross, we don't keep the Sabbath by not working or not cutting our grass on the seventh day of the week. 
That's just not how we keep Sabbath. We keep Sabbath by what? Leaning the weight of our life on Jesus. That's how we keep Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. I love how Paul brings this out in Colossians 2. He says that that if the Sabbath is like a shadow, a a reflection of, of something else, what's that something else? Jesus is the substance. And our Savior delights to provide for all our spiritual and physical needs if we are willing to trust him. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Jesus makes the same promise in in Matthew 6.31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's that? Trust in Jesus, obey Jesus, for all these things will be added to you. So when Israel kept the Sabbath, what was she doing? She was expressing her trust in the God who provides. When we hold fast to Jesus through the obedience of faith, what are we doing? Same thing. (laughs) We're expressing our trust demonstrating our faith in the God who provides. So what's changed under the new covenant since Jesus came? Well, think of it this way, okay? The way we keep the fourth commandment has changed. Instead of you have to cease from your work to express your dependence, it's now what? You have to cling to Christ, faith in Jesus to express your dependence. But notice the heart attitude behind it has always been the same. It's, it's always been about expressing our trust in the God who provides. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Why is that true? Is it just because it looks good on little framed things in your bathroom and <laughs> makes us, oh yes, rest for my soul? And yeah, no, no. Here's why. Why is the end of why is Matthew eleven twenty nine true? Because of Matthew twelve eight. Everybody knows the verses I just read if you grew up in church. Few people know Matthew twelve eight. What's that say? For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's the point? That The rest God requires in Deuteronomy 5 is nothing less than the rest God enjoys, delight in the perfection of his work in Genesis 2, and the rest that we find today by leaning the weight of our life on Jesus. That's the point. Here's our final question. This is where we're going to get really practical. What, What does keeping the Sabbath look like today? That's our final question. And I ask this because I think at this point, I'm certainly in my church context, um, Christians can start thinking or intimating to me as a pastor, Matthew, this, this is wonderful because what I hear you saying is that as long as I know 
I believe in Jesus, I can do whatever I want on Sunday morning. Thanks for the freedom, man. I mean, how about some food? How about some football? How about a long nap? <laughs> if, friend, if your definition of the good life, of rest, gets no better than food and football and naps, you, don't, you have yet to find true life. You don't know what real rest is. Why do I say that? Because Jesus hasn't left it up to us to decide how do we feel like expressing our dependence on him. Think of it this way. Rest, rest in Jesus, true rest, is always the sweet reward of expressing our dependence on Jesus in the ways he has prescribed. Okay? So in other words, Scripture doesn't just say, hey, check it out. We're done with the not working on the seventh-day thing. It's just all about holding fast to faith in Jesus. So now do that and then do whatever you want. No, no. The Lord knows we would run off the ranch with that. So the, the Scripture tells us to express our dependence on Jesus in very particular ways. Take Hebrews 10, verse 23, for example. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What, what's that big language for? Hold fast to Jesus, right? Express your dependence on Jesus. Cling to Jesus. He's your rest. Okay, all right. Let's do that. I, I'm following. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Listen, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christian, is there a week in your life where you don't need to be exhorted to hold your original confidence in Christ firm to the end? Is there a week in your life where you don't need a brother or sister in Christ to, to stir you up to love and good works? I mean, I would argue that clinging to faith in Christ isn't just significantly harder than observing a whole day of physical rest. I would argue, Hebrews would argue, it's downright impossible apart from gathering with the saints in the community of the local church. Here's the point, okay? Trusting Jesus as our Sabbath rest does not turn this gathering into an optional event. Doesn't do that. Don't hear that. If anything, it makes participating in the life and worship of the local church a matter of life and death. Why? Because it's the people of God that will keep you holding fast to the person of your Savior. You can't hold fast to Christ without the people of God he has ordained to help you hold fast to Christ. And that's why... Frankly, church membership is so critical. And why Sunday mornings like this are, are the most important gatherings in the life of not just Kingsway back in Richmond, but for you in Wilmington here at Grace City. It's not, it's not because there's something special about Sunday or Sunday morning as a day. 
Right? The, the Apostle Paul makes it that abundantly clear, Colossians 2. Though we have a lot of um, historical and, and even biblical evidence for Christians meeting on the, the first day of the week, Sunday, or the Lord's Day in celebration of what? The, the day that our Lord rose from the grave. But we don't gather on a day like this just because Sunday is a day is special, necessarily, or ultimately. It's, here's, why do we gather? It's because something supernatural happens, my friend. When the people of God gather to, to read the Word and pray the Word and sing the Word and, and participate in the Word through the Lord's Supper, through baptism, what, what goes down in this setting? God strengthens our faith in Jesus. He's doing that even through these gatherings, even in ways that you don't realize. He's doing that work in you, empowering you to follow him. Again, Kevin DeYoung says this well. Too many of us see corporate worship as a good thing to do if the weather is nice, but not too nice, if the football game is uninteresting and the sports practice doesn't interfere, or if I'm not too tired to show up. Somehow we've gotten the idea that gathering with God's people to worship at God's throne and to hear from God's word is something that's fine to do when it fits into our schedule. I'll be very direct with you on this point, okay? Friend, if you get into the habit of staying home on Sunday mornings or attending only when it's convenient, you're not just missing a meeting. You are missing out on the most important work Jesus is doing in your life. He's renewing your faith, strengthening your trust, deepening your joy in the salvation rest Christ has has won for you through the gospel. And if you only attend Sunday morning when it's convenient, you're disobeying the word of God. Remember, All of history is is moving toward the goal of God's rest. Think about that. Through through faith in Christ, that's that's a rest we experience now in part. One day we're going to know that in full, but until that day, the, the organized gathering of the local church is God's plan for getting you across that finish line. Don't forget that. You cannot say you're depending on Jesus, finding your rest in him, if you stop gathering for corporate worship with the church. That's that's the most important way we express our trust in Jesus, this side of the cross. We refuse to abandon gathering with the people of God, expression of our faith in Christ. But but there's another expression, and I'll end with this, of our dependence on the Lord as the one who gives us life and sustains our life. Second application. And here I want to talk about physical rest and sleep. If you've ever heard that come up in a sermon. But Psalm 127 verse 2, think of it like this, is just as true on Sunday as it is every other day of the week. What's the psalmist say? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What's the point? That that creating and maintaining healthy rhythms of physical rest for your physical body as a finite creature 
is a really practical way we demonstrate our dependence on the Lord. If you think of sleep as a good thing, but not a matter of obedience, you're missing something. There are certainly times, please hear this, that God calls us to sacrifice physical rest for his sake. Absolutely. If you're a young mom with kids in this room, you should not feel guilty right now, okay? Any more than the Apostle Paul did, who had all kinds of sleepless nights as a missionary. But but here's my point. If your normal lifestyle doesn't include the physical rest your body needs, please don't walk around at the water cooler at work and pat yourself on the back like some kind of noble workaholic. You need to humble yourself and repent, friend. Because physical expressions of dependence, like taking time to sleep, what are they? They're ultimately expressions of humility before God. Remember what all the people and animals in verse 14 have in common. They're all creatures. They all need rest. And so do you. That's the grace of physically gathering with the church for worship and the grace of physically sleeping with your physical body. That, that could also look like going on a walk or taking an hour this afternoon to read a Christian book that'll, that'll strengthen your dependence on the Lord. It, may, it might mean asking a sister to hold you accountable for leaving the office at a certain time or, or spending time before bed praying, reading God's word instead of watching TV. It might even mean staying away from your email inbox or a whole stack of paperwork that, that's, that's calling your name until you get to Monday morning. It could look like all those things. But even as I say that, we, we need to be careful, please be careful, to not impose your personal conviction about what it looks like for you to express your dependence on Jesus on a day like Sunday in what is ultimately an area of Christian freedom on fellow believers as if the habits you've developed are the only ways of expressing trust and dependence on Jesus. Don't do that. But at the same time, friend, love the believers around you enough to speak up if you see a brother or sister working themselves to death or not depending on the Lord by getting the physical rest they need, that, that's not a noble, excusable thing. That's a pride in our hearts that's trying to create life for ourselves instead of depending on the God who provides. That's the point of the Sabbath command. Rest isn't found in the absence of work. It's found in depending on on the God who provides. Just think about that. Maybe for some of you young people in this room, you've had a weekend where you were able to just binge on Netflix or play as many video games as you wanted for an entire weekend. You ever notice at the end of that, sometimes you go back to work on Monday, you just think, I feel tired on the inside. Well, why is that? Because rest isn't found in the absence of work. It's the sweet reward of depending on Jesus in the way he's prescribed. God, God created you to depend on him. God saved you to depend on him. He delights when we rest in his work by ceasing from our work. That, that's the logic of the gospel. So be a church, friends, who enjoys rest by depending on the God who provides. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would remind us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I pray wherever our 
habits of work or rest have looked for life and other things besides you that you would forgive us and you would help us and you would empower us to be a people who depend upon you. Jesus, thank you for the rest we find in you and thank you for loving us enough, Lord, to tell us how to express our dependence on you. Give us grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.